Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Booze from the haters, point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah, watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah, get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one, let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if the bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause the bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to a bee. Welcome to the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell, along with a guy who has a new head. Brock, it looks like you, uh, I think I think 50 Cent calls it, your cap can get peeled. Is, is, is that, is that I, I forget the exact terminology that 50 Cent uses, but in the song, um, I Whip Your Head Boy from, from the movie Get Rich or Die Trying, like the, the main phrase is like, your cap can get peeled. I whip your head, boy. Yeah, they're not talking about a haircut. I don't think. I don't think they are either. I'm not gonna co-sign that. Uh, but yeah, I, I did get a haircut today. My barber got me right. So shout out to uh, shout out to Randy. Love Randy. Randy did a good job with that. Thank so um, the Sixers they they put forth a uh, a valiant effort. They go down. Um, you know they, they they had Boston down two with like three minutes left in the game, and. You you kind of for just you know a split second felt like hey they might actually win this game and, and only be down two to one, <laughs> um, but they you know it it was really just a microcosm of just everything that has been this era of Sixers basketball late turnovers um, in in this game were the difference. I mean, Embiid played about as hard as he could. He played um, he played 35 minutes, had 30 points, 13 rebounds. Uh, he did have four turnovers in, in, in this game, two of which came at basically the most painful time. Uh, and, you know, what? It, I don't know that I fully blame him for those turnovers. I kind of blame the 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 coaching staff allowing the offense to be repetitive and basically like okay you guessed it we've gone to the post already 300 times this game we've put him in a face-up situation 200 times from 12 feet out this game already is what we're going to do again down the stretch when it's winning time we're going to do that again and boston played it perfectly they sent a hard they sent a hard trap and forced mb to make a decision and he he always goes for the home run pass as opposed to okay I'm gonna pass it to the nearest guy and then maybe we can swing it around the perimeter and get a look anyway. He always goes for the home run pass, which in this case was to try to pass it through Marcus Smart's head, and uh, Smart Smart intercepted it and created a transition. Boston comes down, they get a three point play from Jalen Brown. They take the lead, ultimately finish the game on a ten nothing run. Um, so, you know, I thought the Sixers played hard. They played well down the stretch. And, uh, you know, for the majority of this game, they made a lot of hustle plays. Richardson dove for loose balls. Al Horford had a lockup possession defensively that actually, like, reinvigorated the team. And I thought that they, they did, a lot of the, did a lot of the good things well that they had to do. Took care of the basketball. Only committed 12 turnovers in this game. Boston committed 10, of course. But, you know, 12 turnovers for them is, is, is what you want to see. Uh, compared to 21 or whatever, you know, whatever we've been, we've been exposed to with this team in recent memory and offensive rebounds as well. Boston only had three offensive rebounds in the entire game. Um, so the Sixers basically did everything that they tried to do. They, they, they kept Boston off the offensive glass, limited second chance points, took care of the basketball. They had eight more field goal attempts than Boston, 95 to 87. And Brett Brown, 
as simple as this sounds, always says like you have to outshoot your opponent, which sounds like a no shit assessment. But in reality, like if you outshoot your opponent, as bad as if you, if, if you, you can shoot as terrible as possible, if you outshoot your opponent, you, you you have a chance of winning. Um, and they did in this game. Ultimately, though, they shot twenty nine and a half percent from the field, twenty three percent from three, and that was basically the the death of the series right there. Yeah, Austin, I think early Philadelphia did a good job attacking, and uh, that can be exemplified by Joel Embiid's 10 free throw attempts before the half. He had 16 total, uh, but most of which came in the first half. So it's good to get Joel Embiid established early, but you alluded to it, Austin. The team shot sub-30%, and when you do that throughout the course of the game, especially bleeding into the third quarter and ultimately late in the fourth, you really have no chance of closing that basketball game. And uh, I, I spoke about this a game or two ago, other teams are willing to let Philadelphia throw punches with them for the entire game because if it comes down to one shot, you don't know who's shooting it uh, in terms of Philadelphia. So if, like you said, you give Joel Embiid the ball and you position him 12 feet away from the basket, that's the most predictable play on the court. Boston can anticipate that for one final play. Uh, and given how everybody else on Philadelphia is performing this series offensively, Boston really has nothing to worry about. Uh, more specifically, Joel Embiid in passing to his teammates this series, they're hitting 25% of the field goals that Joel Embiid's passing to them on and 20% of the three-point shots. So even when Joel Embiid has the resilience to fight through a double team or he's able to pass out of a double team, his teammates are not hitting the shots. I mean, they almost have more turnovers off of Joel Embiid, uh, Joel Embiid passes than they do makes total. So uh, Philadelphia really is just struggling to create any offense, and unfortunately, Joel Embiid's heroics aren't enough to keep them alive in this series. Yeah, and you know, you, you make a really good point there. I think it's something that everyone talks about, but I think the way that you put it was actually something that hasn't been phrased that way, and it really brings to light the issues with this team. Is you know, teams are willing to let the Sixers hang around. And they can survive that way because they know down the stretch that Sixers don't have somebody who has that cold-blooded nature to him to close that game. And at the beginning of, of the season, and I guess, you know, even in the offseason, I believed, and I still do believe, that Tobias Harris could be that guy. I mean, he's been horrible in the series. There's no question about oh it. Um, but but I, look at, I look at someone like Tobias Harris who, you know, his point totals from 2015-16 to now, 16.6 points per game, 16.1, 18.6. Um, let's see, 20, 19.6. I mean, this guy has basically shown linear improvement as a scorer each of the last you know couple of seasons since 2015. And so I kind of believe, and you know, the few, you know I think he has a chance to, to – to sort of prove that he's a better player than this, you know, over the next couple of seasons. But I believe that he was a guy who could be that big shot, big shot maker. And, you know, there, there were times this season where he did have big games. He did make big shots, but you know, when, when things really mattered, like in game one, he's operating from the mid post and taking fadeaways off one leg. Um, and he's missing well short of the basket last night. He, he was six of 19 from the field. Oh, five from three. So, Evidently, this team, whether it be this season or, or whatever it might be, just doesn't have that that DNA player to, to close a game out down the stretch. And people say that you can't like rely on a center to be that guy, and I full-heartedly disagree with that. I don't think it matters what position you play. If you can do it, you can do it. And I think Embiid sort of is smart enough where he knows how to, how to, how to, how to make moves. He knows how to get to the free throw line. I thought last night the problem was he was overly, overly reliant upon contact down the stretch, and you can't you can't play that way offensively. Like one of those possessions late in the game, he was trying harder to draw the foul than he was actually to complete the play. The refs didn't call it, and Boston goes the other way in transition and gets one of their you know ten points in a row, whatever they had. Um, so, I think the closer narrative is is viable, and it's obviously a legit narrative. Um, I just sort of see it from a different light. I mean, you, 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 I was definitely wrong that you can't, it, you, like closing isn't a team effort type thing. 
you can't just, you know, by com- play it by committee. There, there is no, um, there, there, there is no, you know, type of like, like oh, feel good story. Like, oh, if we pass the ball enough, we can find the right guy open, and he's down to make the shot if it's open. Like, that's not how it works. You have to have in this NBA the go-to guy, like a Damian Lillard, like a, like, like a, um, you know, I guess like an Anthony Davis, th- those types of players. So obviously that they, they they don't have that and living at the free throw line isn't a, isn't a viable solution considering that the whistles go quiet late in these games. Um, and, you know, it's really hurt them this season. It's really hurt them this series. Um, Glenn Q Spooner street says there's a reason Toby's never been an all-star and is on his fifth team, not a go-to scorer. Um, I mean, a lot of guys, are go-to scorers that aren't all-stars. Like it's about having the, the, the mentality of, of creating offense. And I think Tobias Harris has been borderline a couple of years. I think the reason he, I think, I think the reason that he's been on, on five teams in six years is because teams view him as, you know, a guy who is versatile enough at, 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 at his position where it's like, he can do more than just spot up for, for outside shots. He can sort of you know create off like one two dribbles. He has that that that, that post game, um, and you know p- teams that are looking to make a push for the playoffs view that as an asset, and it, they they view that as an inexpensive asset too. And so they you know they trade for him, and um, you know it, and and you know they they make a run at at, at, a, at a low playoff seed. I mean, it isn't like he's put up hollow numbers on on bullshit teams. I mean, he's been on, you know, the Bucks, who I think were, you know, pushing for like an, a seven or an eight seed. He's been on Detroit, who was at least competitive. Clippers, where he was holding the Clippers together before he got traded there. Um, so I, I think Tobias Harris is a guy who we we definitely have seen a very very disappointing first year of this contract. But I think he can be better than, than what he's shown. Brock, do you what do you think about that? Yeah, well, what I'll say about Tobias is that I think because of his age, uh, most teams probably know what his ceiling is. And while I disagree with Glenn uh, in the sense that Tobias Harris is just nothing more than a go-to scorer and, and he's bounced around because of that, I do agree that he is expendable. Uh, his production is replaceable. Um, so while Tobias has posted really good regular season numbers, uh, he, he was pretty spotty last year against Toronto. And in the playoffs this year, he's shooting 33% from the field. He hasn't made a three-point shot against Boston yet, and he's got three turnovers. So he, he hasn't really been a catalyst for offense. While he leads Philadelphia in assist points created, it's only really – I believe it's 41 assist points created. Um, so – he's not necessarily a catalyst for an offense, but that's not his fault. There's no primary ball handler in Philadelphia right now. Uh, What I will say about Tobias though, is that he's a very good basketball player. He knows how to get his buckets on the floor. He knows the spots he's most effective in and he can hunt mismatches and get comfortable there. All those things you talked about Austin, the, the, the post game. But I think with Tobias, his production is replaceable. He's yeah. not the type of he's not the type of player where if there's a minute left, Tobias has the ball, and he's taken over every single offensive produ- or every single offensive possession. And because of that, I think he's a great complementary piece, but I, I don't think he's an over the top piece. Uh, so while I do disagree with Glenn, uh, Glenn a little bit, I, I think he most definitely is expendable. Yeah, and I, I mean, of course, he's expendable. I also think that spacing with this Sixers team has hurt more than just Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. I think it's hurt him because the Clippers team, they had guys like Lou Williams. They had uh, Shea Gildas-Alexander. Um, you know, those were all players that could create offense off the dribble from the perimeter. And teams couldn't just pack the lane. And, and schematically, the Clippers' spacing was also much better than the Sixers' was. And as a result, Tobias was basically able to go on an island and – you know, either 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 go up with jump shots and feel empowered to do so, or get to the lane and finish that way. 
And I think with this Sixers team, the schematic, deep, the schematic spacing of the offense is 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 horrendous, and the the people, the players in the court aren't conducive to having more space. And I think that's really hurt him this year as well. Um, and so I think that's why I say I think with a different coach and maybe some 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 renovations this offseason, there is a chance that we see a, a better version of Tobias Harris, not worth $180 million, um, which, I mean, has is, is become like nauseating how, how bad that contract is. Um, but I think somebody who you could say, you know what, he is better than just a um, – a mid-level exception guy, 12 to 16 million a guy masquerading as a max guy. He's somebody who can give you 20, 22 points per game. I just think that this roster construction also hurt his skill set. And, you know, I, I talked to an agent the other, the other day um, and I asked him, I said, like, you know, like, like what do you think that the value is of, of Harris on an open market? And he said, I don't know why they offered him that contract because they, I mean, no one was going to give him that value. It was it, they were they were bidding against themselves, which is another failure of Elton Brands. Um, but you know, he, here we are. Here, this is this is this is the the core. Um, so I wanted to go into this because I've seen a lot of like think pieces and sort of like everything is is is, is over. The process is done. How do you feel about the process? Looking back on ultimately what this product is. <clears throat> I think it was worth it. And I think they revolutionized basketball and, and maybe even sports in the sense of management. And, and Sam Hinkie was at the forefront of that. At this point, I don't really think they made any of the wrong decisions in terms of where they've gotten. So like, of course you've had bad signings and you've whiffed in a couple of drafts, but they have the centerpieces in Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And that's the most important. So they don't have to have a monumental rebuild where they're now looking for pieces to rebuild. They have those two under contract until at least 2023, which means while you may have anticipated the window was five years, maybe something upwards of like eight years, given both of them are healthy, the window has now probably been diminished to about a year or two. Um, so what I think is Philadelphia – needs to recon reconsider their goals here and reevaluate what's going on in the organization. And when they decide that they want new management and a new head coach, those are the priorities. And then, of course, you look to trade pieces like Richardson or Horford if you can yield any sort of positive package. And then after you do that, you look at the roster you have, you give it a year after it's fully constructed with a new head coach. And if that doesn't work, uh, you still have another year of those two under contract. You try it again one more time, providing neither of them wants to force a trade out. And then if it doesn't work, you should have time to potentially trade one of them and kind of have a little wrinkle in, in your ultimate plan. Um, but there's trade pieces, there's assets everywhere. I am of the belief that Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons can coexist. I wouldn't want to trade either of them. But given how the organization has looked in the past couple of years with their management, uh, babying the players, keeping them sidelined, how they've dealt with certain issues, the drafts, um, I'm not so sure that players really want to stay in Philadelphia past when their contract expires. So all of this stuff is – it really remains to be seen, and the landscape of the league is probably going to change over the course of the next year given everything that's happened uh, with COVID and, and the bubble. Uh, but I think ultimately they're in a better spot than people may anticipate because you still have your two superstars under contract, and that's the most important part. Um, but now it's going to be how do you pivot and build around them, and can it work? Yeah, and I think one thing that – one thought that has sort of crept into my mind is like when it comes to that offseason when you have to make a decision – as to what direction this team goes in. Um, I, I think that these decisions this offseason may ultimately speed up the timeline in which, you know, they ultimately have to make a decision on those two. And it won't be because, like, you know, the, the, it won't be because they're worried about a contract coming to an end, not getting any value. 
it'll be because they have to create space somewhere in terms of cap space and they can't move off of the contract that they are, that, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck with one of the Horford or Harris contracts that you, you, you by default in order to, 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 to get out of this, you know, pigeonhole, you have to trade one of Embiid and Simmons to create that space. Um, Glenn again says, Joel's going to quietly ask for a trade to Miami IMO. I, I, if he, even if he did, I doubt the Sixers would honor that request. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to trade him to a team of choice within the conference that, that I don't think they do that. Um, even if he asked for it, I don't think they do that. Um, so I, I, the, you know, the ends of this whole thing with where we are now, where, where this team is now, I, you know, obviously it, it's, it's pretty bad at, at, at this stage, but I would also say that it doesn't mean that the original idea to have this massive, massive, you know, game, you know, like, like basketball changing rebuild where you're basically getting like a giant middle finger to, to the rest of the NBA while you, you know, blatantly and abhorrently tank. Um, that was the idea that you needed to have. It was a good idea. And I think anyone who's smart would stand by that. Um, because it got you two pieces that you were just never um, got guys that you know just you know never um, they never would have had a chance at before because they would have been stuck at an eight seed. Um, so I, I I don't think that um, you know the the original idea was a bad idea. I just don't think that. You know, these decisions. I think these decisions have been have been the crippling part of the whole thing. Um, I think that, like with fandom too, a lot of people get really attached to personalities, and they forget that ultimately sports are a business. Um, so you have a lot of people that fall in love with coaches, or they fall in love with expandable players, or they're not really sure what the organization's goal is. But at some point, you have to value winning over everything else, and that's a decision that Philadelphia made. Um, so while people may have liked the personalities associated with the rebuild or the direction and where Sam Hinkie was taking the team, at some point you have to warrant enough respect as an organization and get serious enough to be considered as a competitor and, and then furthermore compete. Uh, so I, I think that there were business decisions made in place and the goal of the organization altered over the past decade. But I think you start with putting a new voice in the locker room and, and maybe stripping management. And then a couple of years down the road, then you look to splitting the two up. But for Joe to go to Miami, especially given what Miami is going to build around with Bam at a bio there, I don't, I don't really see what assets Miami would part with to get Embiid, and, and I'm not sure the logistics of how that trade would work. I also think that, and I think I'm sort of starting to see this now too, and I don't think this bodes well for, for, for Miami either, um, is the fact that look at what Boston and – uh, Houston are doing. They've fully, fully committed and leaned into this small ball idea, and the game is actively changing because of them. I mean, I guess you could look back at the Warriors and say it too. Although the Warriors sort of like put out a Daniel Tice type, type a Daniel Tice type center where they like minimal usage, like just like stuck them out there because they needed to have five guys in the court and he was serviceable. But they, you know, teams are going all wings now and. I mean, I think a guy like Rudy Gobert is eventually going – I think Rudy Gobert is already kind of getting phased out of the valuable position that he would have been in, you know, 10 years ago as a center. And I think Embiid is ultimately when, when he finally sort of hits the downside of, of his career, he'll, you know, have he'll have been phased out because, I mean, unless they decide to go back to center, the age of analytics says that with guys like, you know – that having teams like Tatum, Jalen Brown, and uh, Gordon Hayward, whatever, that's more efficient. Got having teams like James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Robert Covington, it is you know that that's more efficient to an offense than um, you know having a center. And 
while I think Embiid is, is like a super special talent, I'm kind of understanding where they're coming from. And I think Spike Eskin actually, and Mike Levin and, and Andrew Sharp made a good point last night on the right to Ricky Sanchez, where they said that, you know, like Embiid might not be able to be the best player on this team, but you can have him be the anchor of your defensive unit and average over 20 points per game and have that team win a title. Like you just, you just can't expect, expect him to be your primary source of offense. Um, Glenn says again, so sell high. I know that we want to like do this doomsday thing where like this, like where we have to trade one of them, but trading Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons right now is just not the answer. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's counterproductive and you need to have two guys that are top 10 players to two, no top 20 players in the NBA um, to have a chance and trading Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. Those trades just don't yield equal value. I mean, the, the, the trades that you see for superstars, you're generally not going to get back the equal value. And those guys are 20, 24 and 26, 27. I mean, Embiid's health history might push back that time, might push forward the timeline a little bit, but there's no reason to trade and, and you know anyone. Um, well, no, obviously <laughs> no reason to trade either of those two players. Um, so, you know, I've seen a lot of this. I mean, I, I know Sixers Adam wrote a piece about this. I know it's basically been like a, you know, Joe Gillia wrote about it, and I can't decide whether I think it's it's sort of like this hot takey culture that associates of Spike Gaskin have sort of been programmed into doing. And you know, I'm not saying they don't have their own opinions. They certainly very very well may, and it, and it may may even be the case. But I just feel like are we are are people and the public are they already unreasonably pessimistic about this team's title chances because I think as long as you have Embiid and Simmons, you'll be in the mix. Um, obviously, this this current iteration of the team is not going to come close to winning a title. But I think you, you know, I think right now, like two years ago, I would have said there's an 80 to 90% chance that, that this team wins a title with these two. Now I'm down to like 40 to 50% chance that they win a title with these two. But I think, I think if you make one trade and you do, and you, and you, and it's well orchestrated, it's consulted upon, it's, 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 you know, that you have the right people in the front office, you can pivot and really open yourself back up and, and, and raise those chances again. Um, but do you think the title window is already shut? I don't think it's already shut. And I think the reason why people may be so trigger happy with trades or proposals at least is because ultimately Joel and Ben may not want to split up, but Austin, you just said you need to make that trade for a third piece potentially. So Philadelphia does that and they acquire Tobias Harris, and they lock Harris, and they go out and open their pockets up for Al Horford. And it was a failed product on the court this season. So eventually something has to click, you'd assume. But the personalities, the morals, the egos, the work ethics, they might not always match. So over the course of time, while the players may not each other want to split, they might just have to because that may be the design of the team. So it's like – how many more trades are you going to make to go out and get that third star player? How many opportunities are you going to have to sign a free agent that's the missing piece in, in the summer? So these opportunities are really scarce. And the reason why I think people may try to expedite the process and, and trade someone is because, yeah, if you see Joel Embiid and you're a believer of analytics and teams are going to go small and you see the value in trading Joel Embiid when his value is high and getting a package back, then that's one thing. But to just blatantly say you want to split the two because their games don't coexist, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Uh, I think this year more than ever, the structure of their roster was exposed because there was no shooting and, and there was no help to alleviate the offensive pressure on either Joel or Ben. So you, you probably have another opportunity or two in the next couple of years to emphasize on what you have or capitalize, I should say, rather, and, and win a title. Um, but I, I think the reason the window is closing shorter than than people may have anticipated is just because the organization only has so many opportunities to do this. Yeah, and I think I guess for for me, like one thing that I kind of play around with in my head is the fact that like, okay, what does a rebuild look like? And 
the only rebound that I've ever played, I've ever paid close, close attention to has been this rebuild where it was four years of actual like human excrement basketball. It was literally like comedically terrible and it sucked and it, and it, and it wasn't fun to, it wasn't fun to watch. Um, and I guess, you know, if I was in the media back then, I probably would have felt differently about it. Um, but you know, it's still, it's not good basketball to watch. Um, and so that's the only rebuild I've ever known. That's four years. And then it's like a starting, it's like starting over. And then it's like, okay, then how many picks do they miss in that four year stretch? Today's rebuild, it's like one or two years. And then you're back, you're right back in the mix. Like Memphis is, is going to be there for, you know, the future, the foreseeable future, because they hit on, on a couple of picks. And so I think a rebuild can be a lot less, I guess, slow and a, a lot less painful for the fans if it's if it's done with competent people leading the way. And I'm not saying Sam Hinkie wasn't competent. He was, I think, well, well, well ahead of his time in terms of intelligence that there's no one wanted to listen to this evil scientist. Um, now, I mean, obviously, Brian Colangelo did unspeakably bad things. Like he traded Nerlens Noel for a second round pick. He like had to pay to get Jalil before off the books two two uh, two lottery picks the Sixers had. Um, you know, Twitter Twitter gate, what have you, the the, the Fultz trade. By the way, listening to the JJ Reddick podcast today uh, with you know the, the the new version of it because he's like separated from the ringer. Yep. And he had Jason Tatum on, and Tatum said that Ainge told him he was going to pick him number one either way. Yeah. So, it, so I mean, they were never. So, I mean, they, they don't make that trade if they're not a hundred percent sure. Um, uh-huh. Tatum, Tatum actually thought he was going to be in Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. He he going to be drafted by Phoenix. Right? He, wanted, he wanted to be a Sun. He said he said he, he thought he had better opportunity with the Suns. Um, that's sure. why Ebook's going to stay there. I'm telling you, they're creating something in Arizona. I'm, I'm telling you yeah. right now. Under a coach that, that coached under Brett Brown. I so, wouldn't say coach under though. I, I'd say he kept his ass. He kept his ass in a job. He made sure Brett wasn't living off unemployment. Well, I'll tell you this: their defense was a lot better under Lloyd Pierce, and uh, Brett, yeah. Brown's, Brett, Brett Brown's supposed to be like this. You know, the, he, he he's championed the the importance of defense, but that defense went from like a top ten defense in two years ago under Lloyd Pierce. As soon as Lloyd Pierce left, they couldn't they they, they couldn't stop a leak last year. Exactly. They, they were as disappointing as possible this year. I wanted to say that I don't necessarily think the Sixers have to rebuild uh, because I, I think they are in a unique position where you do have your two superstars under contract. So uh, the window to win without opening your pockets to extend these contracts is still like two or three years, but uh, it's more of a renovation because you're not going to part with Joel or Ben in the next year or two, I'd assume. So, it's really about how creative can you get with the rest of the roster? How much can you do with the guys on the bench or the supporting pieces to really maximize the talent on your roster? This year, it was a failed product. I said that. Al Horford isn't a floor spacer. Tobias Harris, could, Tobias Harris couldn't primarily be a catch-and-shooter. Uh, Josh Richardson is is not a creator for others in the half court. But with a healthy Ben and with a healthy Joe – you have to worry about so much less because you know you're getting point production. You know you can get production low post. You know you can get transition points. It's really how you surround these guys. So if you can potentially get Al Horford off of the books, do it. If you can get Josh Richardson flip for something that can maybe contribute in a different role, do it. But I really think everybody other than Joe and Ben should be untouchable. I think even Matisse – Despite how around, you know, the way around, everyone other than Joe and Ben should be touchable. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but I didn't want to But I think even even with given how good Matisse Dybul's defense has looked on ball this season, uh, there's still a lot to work on. Body control, the personal fouls, offensively, uh, there's really nothing to show for it. So everybody other than Joe and Ben, in my opinion, should, should be, be available. And then you can you can renovate the rest of your roster. I even see Aaron commented. I don't know if you're going to bring that up. Oh, yeah. No, sorry about that, Aaron. Uh, Aaron XA says, thoughts on Horford, J. Rich, and first pick for Chris Paul. 
despite his I age, leadership on, on ball defense by making an off-ball shooting and clutch play is what we need, IMO. Um, I, in my opinion, of course. Um, um, I think that OKC is going to trade Chris, Chris Paul basically as soon as they can. I think they want to rebuild and they want to put the ball in the hands of, of SGA as soon as, as quickly as possible. And I think Sam Presti is a smart enough GM and Billy Donovan, a good enough head coach that they can have a quick rebuild and re- be right back in the mix of things. Um, of course, you know, th- there, there's, and, and so to answer your question, I would do the trade. And I also know for a fact, I know for a fact that OKC at, at one point in the season had interest in Horford and maybe that, that, that interest is still there. Um, I also don't know like what they plan to do with Steven Adams. Cause if you trade, Horf- if they trade for Horford, um, you know, you, you I mean, like, like, like they're going to have a back to the basket center and another, another guy who's basically, really almost, yeah. So I mean, I, I guess the implication there is like, what do you do with Steven Adams? But I do know, I mean, a, a player agent literally said that, that, that the two main teams that the two of the teams that that have that have been intrigued intrigued by adding Horford in the middle and despite of this season have been OKC and Sacramento so I mean I I think they're going to push hard for a trade this offseason involving uh you know Buddy Heald and the Kings and who knows maybe they even put it off because or they even maybe they even pull it off because the Kings like like their center position has been a has been a has been a hole you know it's been unpredictable um Marvin Bagley's a power forward and you know, he's been injured on and off. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just sort of been a weird situation for that. So maybe, maybe, maybe they can pull that off. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that they've put themselves in, in a situation where it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty dire. And you look at the teams such as the Nuggets, such as, um, I guess Dallas, Milwaukee to some extent, Boston to some extent, um, Toronto is a good example of this. Even even Miami is a good example of this. Those teams are where they are, and that is up three nothing in series, or you know having you know in control of series right now because. They don't take for late first round picks for, for you know for granted. They don't just sell them off. They 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 find those talents in the late first round, second round, and they develop them. Fred Van Vliet starting for the Raptors, averaging like almost twenty a game as an undrafted free agent, and he's you know one of the better shooters in the NBA. That's you, that Toronto has squeezed squeezed out oozing value from guys that that no one even you know like would shake a stick at they've turned Pascal Siakam from a late first round pick to a superstar basically they you know guys like uh, Terrence Davis um Norman Powell the Sixers have to stop trying to hit home runs with their first round pick but rather like don't just sell it off don't just draft some some euro stash you have to start taking advantage and, and, and cultivating role players that are inexpensive because ultimately max contract guys, they don't think it's cute to come to a team where they have to put forth 40 minutes a game to, to for the team to have a chance because you do, because you have, you know, you have balance of your stars, but you don't have any balance down the rest of the roster. You don't have any role players. And so, you know, here they are, they're stuck with, by the way, they're still stuck with Mike Scott's, you know, contract too for the next for the, for the next season. So you have to start valuing young talent, and they kind of started to do that with Landry Shamit and Matisse Thybul. Now they're now in a position where they also might have to trade those young assets in order to get off these contracts. So I mean that you know I almost wonder if this this off season is a job not just for a general manager, but rather for like a consulting firm, like like. Like, a, like if there's if there's something that exists like a basketball management consulting firm, that wouldn't be a terrible idea at this point. I mean, they have to get off contracts, and 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 you know find inexpensive value, and it's such a chokehold that they're in right now that I'm not sure that I buy that 
like smart people, smart coaches, smart managers, you know, whatever, want to come into this franchise and deal with this. It's a it's a massive, massive assignment. Now, obviously, they won't get any. I mean, I don't think they'll get the fault for it if it, if if they can't pull it off because these are the mistakes that they're trying to undo of previous incompetence. But it's going to be a massive, massive undertaking, and it's going to be all of pieces that they didn't put forth themselves. So that isn't exactly attractive. Now, I guess Stan Van Gundy. I mean, I've been, I've been watching the the home local broadcast of the playoffs, but I guess Stan Van Gundy has put forth a pretty good audition. Yeah. As as the color commentator for TNT, so maybe he wants to do it. I mean, maybe it works. Um, he he's has a history of developing bigs pretty well. Um, maybe maybe that works, but I still don't think that this is an attractive job right now. The Sixers, unless you have to, unless you like throw a lot of money at a, at a coach or a general at someone or someone to come in and manage this franchise. It might be, but I think more importantly, the team also needs a culture. Uh, and you could argue that there's been culture, but the Sixers have really headlined all of the odd stories in the past five years in the NBA. And on top of being an enigma to the rest of the league, they have one of, if not the most scrutinized players in the entire NBA. They have Joel Embiid, who's held to a completely different standard than most of all other bigs in the league. And a coach who's been there seven years and four of which were a rebuilding process, which is pretty much longer than most all other rebuilds present day in the NBA as well. So given all of that, I think Philadelphia really lacks this culture. That's awkward. Let's take a question while Brock gets back into the picture. Um, Pierre Baptiste says, with Brett Brown's job all but over. Uh, There we go. Brock, you're back. Yeah. What, were you, what were you saying? Ah, <laughs> oh, man, this internet here is spotty. We need we need some extenders. I'm gonna work on that. But um, I was saying what I cut out at. Do you remember? I, I don't even remember. It happened so fast. Just like a freeze. I was, just, I was just talking about the culture or lack yeah, of yeah, culture. Yep. Yep. Um, so you've got one of the most scrutinized players, Joel Embiid, held to a completely different standard than most all their centers. The the process rebuild. So there's really no culture in Philadelphia. In Phoenix, Monty Williams steps in. He instills a culture, and there's a complete change. The team goes 8-0 in the bubble. Now they have something to build off of. Uh, with, with Milwaukee, you build around Giannis. You create a culture. Now when players are, are waived or it's towards the postseason, players will sign and play for Milwaukee. Philadelphia has to be a, des- a destination where players want to play. It has to be somewhere where there's a culture. And Jimmy Butler talked about this kind of it. It was almost like a subliminal on his podcast. He said he can cuss out players on, on Miami and they can cuss them back out. Uh, he, he can help hold people accountable. There really isn't accountability in Philadelphia. There's no culture. So I think on top of new management or even the, the current management stepping in and doing their job, uh, a new culture, a new identity would be, would be really beneficial for this team. Yeah. And I think like, like the culture, was able to fly under the radar two seasons ago because you had two young guys. One was sort of a black hole and that you didn't know whether he'd be available every night or what. Um, and then you also had like Markel Fultz situation. So this team is like a whirling dervish of no one knows what they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their, their young talent surprises a lot of teams and they end up being able to hide the fact that, you know, hey, this coach is – you know, th- th- there isn't like a, a true culture here. You don't, you know, a, a lot of different things go. And then last season, Jimmy Butler comes in, and and you know, wh- whether you want to say, um, you know, he's a cancer or, or, or whatever. I mean, it hasn't worked out with two teams before Philly, and that didn't work out with Philly. You know, and and I, I guess you know a, a large reason. You know, maybe, maybe he probably may might have stayed if um, you know if things if. if if management was different about things, but, you know, I think his sort of militant combative nature was a shockwave amongst the, the, the coaches and amongst the players. And that sort of, I guess him trying to implement his own type of culture and him being himself kind of threw off the culture that was already established. And as a result, just sort of was a bad chemistry situation, but th- th- I mean, they, they bring in Al Horford thinking that, you know, he can sort of be that glue guy. And he's just a quiet leader. He doesn't, you know, he, people in Boston say like, 
he doesn't say much, but when you talk, he listens because of what he says is powerful. No, you need somebody there who's going to like, you know, break shit. Who's going to break a mirror? You know, who's going to, um, you know, he, you need somebody who's going to be tough love. Essentially, is what they need. Um, with with Brett Brown, Pierre Baptiste says with Brett Brown's job all but over. What qualities will the Sixers look for in the next head coach? Well, I think one thing for sure um, that they'll look for is someone with legitimate schematics to a, both an offense and a defense. Brett Brown prides himself on, or he you know, he he buys hard into this philosophy of let's let's let this you know let's let the offense unfold organically without organized sets because that's like you know that's like that's how good basketball is played. These guys in this team are not constructed for, for you know, disorganization on offense. They're too young. They don't know how to win yet. That that philosophy might work with a team like the Warriors or maybe even a team like the Spurs that have more established players that 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 have been around longer that have had, that know how to win championships. But that's not going to work with, with 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 these two. You know, with the team that's ceiling so far has been the second round, and. So I think a coach that can implement an offensive scheme so that way they don't just like squander 25 point leads almost every night. Um, and I think, I think a coach that is good at adjusting in, in game to different things, th- they'll do that. I think also just Brett Brown makes it too easy for guys that aren't good communicators to, to not communicate. Like yep. he, he makes it too easy for guys like Embiid and Simmons to not communicate. You know, he makes it too easy for, I guess, anything to go. And I think a coach that doesn't allow that, that, you know, has team events and team functions that really drives a, a culture and a chemistry and, you know, fosters a feeling that the players want to play for each other. Because I think players that want to play for each other, that's about as dangerous as anything you can have on the basketball court. Because when things aren't going easy for you, you still don't stop because you want to play for your teammates and help them be better. And I think, you know, that kind of culture um, is something that they don't have. Guys are kind of out there for themselves to some extent, um, but they, you know, they, they, there's a limit to how far they'll go individually to, to see the team succeed. I think a, a coach that can push them to want to play for each other, that, that, that isn't, you know, not, not a motivational speaker, but, Rather, somebody that you know, somebody that can say, "This is how we're going to do things. This is the flavor that I want." Brett Brown talks about like a vanilla flavor. Like, no, you need some like some Jimmy's, some some fucking you know, like like some weird ass toppings. You need a mixture of like banana, peanut butter, Rocky Road, all this different shit. You need to have those colorful natures to your to your organization. Vanilla doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. Um, so that's what I think they'll look for in the next head coach, and someone with experience. By the way, um, mm-hmm. I think Stan Van Gundy's put himself in a, in a good position, but I, mean, I don't know if he'll be, be the guy. There's talk that Ime Udoka, who's the assistant head coach under Brett Brown, might be the guy. They might fire him too. They might they, they might literally clean house and just fire literally everybody. Who knows? Um, I don't think you know. I, I know Jeff Goodman t- tweeted that he that you know. Jay Wright would be the you know he he's adamant that Jay Wright if he were to leave he would leave for the Sixers. I don't think Jay Wright wants this mess. Jay Wright has won two titles and he's smoked more talented teams with his three guard you know shooting you know, blitzing you with three point shots offense. What is he going to do with this team? I mean, he it's it'll, it, why would he change the way that he succeeded just for the Sixers? I mean, I I, I don't think I don't think Jay Wright's going to come here for this iteration of the team. Now maybe two three years down the road. Maybe that's maybe that's something that he's more interested in, but I don't see it. Um, Jack Duffy says Jimmy saw right through all the BS we're dealing with today. I think that's true to an extent. I think he was also insulted by the way that like management sort of said like, "Can he be controlled?" Like 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 that's a like that's a grown man. You, you can't control him, and he's also you know he's also done enough where he shouldn't have to be controlled by anyone. Um, but I also think that. Jimmy was difficult in a lot of respects. He wanted to do things his way. And, you know, you, you, you could have said, 
you know, the, like, the decision between him leaving and Brett leaving was like, obviously, Jimmy, why couldn't Jimmy have stayed with the implication that Brett was likely on the way out anyway, in the next you know, year or so. Um, and, you know, at least, you know, you, you know, you, you would have basically a three headed monster. But then it comes down to the fact that, look, Ben and Jimmy just weren't going to coexist. Ben was not happy having the ball out of his hands. Um, you know, it, you know, the, 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 again, this is a product of them allowing an environment where Ben Simmons thinks he has the right and, you know, the, 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 the gall to say, this is what I want to do. This is what we're going to do. So, you know, with the culture in place, with actual, you know, look, this is how we're going to do things here. <clears throat> ben Simmons feels empowered to say, like, you know, to, to make a big stink out of not having the ball in his hands. And then they oblige to it. So Jimmy not being here, I think, is more of a thing with Ben Simmons than it is with, with you know, like with like a BS thing, which I think is, there, there was BS there for sure. But I'll also say this. If I have to pick between a guy who's going to be 30 in the middle of the season – but, and you know, might be a better player right now than Ben Simmons, who get that versus a guy like Ben Simmons who is 23, 24, and literally, if he ever gets a jump shot, is going to be a top 10 player in the NBA consensus. I'm not going to speed up my timeline because of Jimmy Butler. I'm going to stick with the younger guy, Ben Simmons, because at least if Embiid goes, you still have you still have something to build on with Ben Simmons there. If, if you know, Jimmy's had a spotty injury history prior to you know prior to, to, to Miami, prior to Philly, um, and Embiid's you know you never know what your timeline is with Embiid, so I think you're speeding up something that doesn't have to be sped up by you know by having to choose between Ben and, 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 and Jimmy. So I don't blame the Sixers for choosing Ben over over Jimmy Butler. I more so blame them for not getting more back in the trade. And if and, and, and if Jimmy walks. And you don't get anything for him. That's not the worst thing in the world. You could use that money to get somebody like a Boyan Bogdanovich. You could use that money to fill in other needs on your team. And if they had done that, they would have been in a better position than they are right now. They could have struck out in free agency last, last summer and only walked with Tobias Harris or walked away with neither. But guess what? They would be in a better situation than they are right now because at least you'd have a pile of cash that you're sitting on for the future that you can, you know, if you have to, you overpay for somebody, um, you know, that, that fits your team better going forward. Yeah, v very well said. And I mean, thinking about Jimmy Butler, the situation's really murky because no one really knows what transpired, but I don't know whether to think it was between Ben and Jimmy, or if it was between Jimmy and Brett and Ben was just thrown into that conversation. Now, I know on the court there may have been some issues with the two coexisting, and, and in the playoffs that was a clear indictment, uh, taking the ball out of Ben's hands and putting it in Jimmy's hands, and nobody expected that to happen at that time. But I, I, I'm inclined to believe it was honestly between Brett and Jimmy at the end of the day. I mean, correct? Is that is that the wrong assumption to make? I think it was Jimmy versus Brett and Ben. Because I think I, I think it was both. Because like you look at the timeline, and a couple of days before things start to leak out, um, and you know it's like it's like it goes from like a near lock that the Sixers are going to resign Butler to within a couple of days, it's like okay, Butler's probably all but gone. Now what way are the Sixers pivot? Um, and so then as soon as frequency opens, while every other you know team is 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 signing new guys or locking up their free agents. The first rumor that leaks out is that the Sixers are nearing a deal, nearing a deal with Ben Simmons on, you know, on a max extension. And then yeah. literally an hour later, it's Al Horford's in the building. So it's pretty clear to me that while Jimmy and Brett were never going to coexist, that wasn't going to be the, the killer in it all. Because... Um, like, the ownership wanted to fire Brett anyway at the end of last season. Like, they were basically done with Brett too. It took Elton Brand and Joel saving his job, you know, on like the last couple of days of the season after things ended for them to really be committed to bringing him back. Um, but Jimmy would have outlived Brett with the Sixers. So I don't think that was the driving thing. I think it was they actively chose to not speed up their timeline and retain Ben Simmons it, over Jimmy because Ben, if they re-sign Jimmy, 
Ben would have been out of here the, the, the next offseason. I mean, he would have he would have signed elsewhere. Um, and so I, I, I don't fault them for 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 going with, you know, Ben Simmons over Joe over over Jimmy Butler. And I mean, if the Heat fans find this and they want to, like, you know, roast me for it, that's fine. I, I, I don't blame them for that decision. I think you have you, you go with the younger guy who is maybe a lesser player right now, but has a much, much higher ceiling as to what he can be. And so I, I think I think they had to make a decision, and I don't think it was a hard one to make personally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack Duffy says Joe at times as well, albeit he's matured tremendously in the last year. I think Joel Embiid is. I get fans are being overly emotional. They're they're you know Philly's a very reactional city with fans. My dad's one of the worst at it. I mean, every single shot, it's like live or die. Like, like, like every shot Embiid makes, like my dad's like, I can't believe this guy. They think they call him a, they call him a star. He makes the next play. Oh man, I can't believe they got him. They would be toast without him. And I'm like, wait, wait, two seconds ago, you just said, and then, and then, and and then, you know, but um, Joel Embiid is not why they're losing this series. Joel Embiid is the the only reason they're, they're hanging, you know, they've been, they haven't been blitzed every all, all three games. And so, you know, even, even with Joel playing his heart out and he was, I mean, it was, it was like sad to see last night, him in the media availability after the mm-hmm. game, like he had his head down. He was like trying his hardest to just answer the questions and get the fuck out. But I mean, he, you could, you could tell he was just done with it, like frustrated over with. Um, but he's still saying like, I gotta be better. Like it's on me. I gotta lead the team. Like, bro, you, you're doing everything you can. It's the people around you that have to step up. Um, and so the fact that Joe's willing to just sort of like put himself out there as the bait and say like, this is my fault. I gotta be better. Like, like I think that's a sign of maturity. Well, some players might say like, you know, oh, well, this hurt. You know, I was sick. You know, whatever. Embiid has left it out there this entire series, and he's given his 100. percent He's, you know, he he's battled, you know, some, I guess, not depression, but I guess a, a down period in his basketball enjoyment um, this season. He's dealt with some, you know, some fan stuff back and forth. But he's shown up in this bubble, and he and he and he's been as, you know, as good as they as they've needed a lot of the time. And I think he's also shown growth with turnovers. I mean, his turnovers are still bad, but I mean, it isn't like you enter the ball in the post and you're done for like it used to be like he can, he's now reading doubles better. I think he had like 15 or 17 potential assists last night. They just weren't making shots. And so, right. And so I, I think, you know, people are, are very down on, you know, people, not, not very down, but people are like, Joel should be pardoned from this entire thing. Like this is not anything to do with Embiid. This is literally everyone else, but Embiid. And then people are also saying like, like I, I tweeted last night, like Ben Simmons has like this series has proven that Ben Simmons is 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 as 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 important, if not more important, than Joel Embiid. And people are like, this, he would have changed the series. You don't know what he would have done in Game One against Jason Tatum. You, you, you know, you, you you don't know if Jason Tatum has those big basket at their big basket just crushes them all game long. You don't know if Ben Simmons changes that dynamic last night. The Sixers could very well be up two to one in this series. If Ben Simmons is playing, I mean the the the, the game came down to you know the, game one and game two, or sorry, game one and game three were decided by um, eight points each. Ben Simmons can absolutely change how that game, how those two games turn out, um, and if not just for his defense, how about the fact that the Sixers can actually play open court basketball with Ben Simmons? He creates so many live ball opportunities, uh-huh. and, and 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 he pushes the ball down you know the the proverbial throat of opposing defenses. He would have posed a lot of problems for the Celtics, you know, as a defensive player. And the Sixers, you know, even if even if you could say that Ben has been neutralized by Brad Stevens, at, at you know, at, at points in his career, um, this season that wasn't necessarily the case. That Ben Simmons was has been pretty good this year against Celtics, mm-hmm. and and in the playoffs, the, the game slows down. They, they say that doesn't bode well for the Sixers. Sixers are not a good half court offense team. Their, their, their best shooting comes off of transition looks. 
So a guy like Ben Simmons that can facilitate transition opportunities would have been paramount. So Ben Simmons absolutely could have been the difference in the series up to this point. Maybe they don't win the series, but there's a there's a realistic chance that they'd be up two to one in the series that have down three zero without Ben Simmons. So you know you, you can say that Ben Simmons doesn't have a jump shot all that you want, and you can you know you, you can you know demand more of him all you want, but the bottom line is that him not being here for this series is a massive, massive, massive story that should yeah. be should be evaluated more heavily than I think it is. I mean, the difference is on offense, Ben Simmons led the NBA in assisted three-pointers made this season. Uh, I just told you that Joel Embiid from the post is passing to his teammates and they're making 25% of the field goals from his passes. So not only on offense do you gain the transition player, the player that's going to create for others, the player that's going to create for himself. And not to mention at his height and, and physical advantage, there's really no one on Boston to throw at Ben Simmons other than Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or Gordon Hayward. And this season that didn't end well for Boston. Ben Simmons registered one of his highest field goal percentages against the Celtics all season. And on the other end, Jason Tatum registered one of his lowest field goal percentages and made one of his, or, or I should say made some of his fewest three pointers or posted the posted one of his lesser three-point percentages against Philadelphia, and that's defensively because of Ben Simmons. So you lose a lot on both ends of the floor that you really can't recover from. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I want to end it on this because uh, we're, we're basically about an hour. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know that I believe – that Ben Simmons would have made this team built for the playoffs. But I think it's just a hilarious, like old takes exposed kind of thing that they actually like spent an entire year with like their, their, their phone to phone, you know, um, soliciting of tickets from ticket salesmen and, 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 you know, their campaigns for we're built for the playoffs. It's hilarious how bad it looks. I mean, I mean, you know, that they built for the playoffs is a joke. They, they, they are not built for the playoffs. Um, and you know, and I, I think, you know, again with Ben Simmons, obviously that, that that would have changed uh, some some things. But I still don't know that they would have won the series. It still would have been a clunky fit. Um, you know, it still would have been. You know, you still would have needed more out of Tobias Harris and, and Al Horford than what they provided. But I think you, I think there, I think it would have been a different story. But to say that this team is built for the playoffs is a hilarious joke and a failure of to understand <clears throat> to understand basketball. I mean. They, they've prided themselves on bully ball so much this season. And, you know, it's, they talk about it all the time. They've been outworked in both game one and game two in terms of bully ball. I mean, they, they, they've got – game one and game two, they got away from their all their principles of, of, of out-rebounding opponents. I mean, there's no way Kemba Walker should be getting his own offensive rebound off misses and laying it back up and in against this team. They, they should be thoroughly – out rebounding every team every night, uh, 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 no, every game, and to say that this that this team is built for the playoffs is an embarrassment for for the for the organization. It's a good way to sign off, Austin. It's it's unfortunate <laughs> we have to conclude this season with that statement, but I think that's how we all feel. Yep. Now there will be an emergency pod for when they inevitably inevitably fire Brett Brown in the next two weeks. Um, there may there may even be a season wrap up pod at some point in next week or so, but this may be our last pod for, you know, for, this may be the last pod with a Sixers game in front and, you know, in the future looming. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brock, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a great, great first season having you as a co-host. Yep. Um, the best of this show, the best of this duo is yet to come. Uh, Brock, any last words, any, any parting shots? Any just videos you're no, no, no parting shots. Uh, just stay solid, and let's hope that Woj or, or Sham, somebody's working overtime to tweet out this Brett Brown firing because that's going to be a day we could all rejoice on. Yeah. Wow, wow, Wes says before we head out, who's the leader of this team, Embiid or Embiid or Simmons? I'm sure uh, Sixers trade Embiid and Simmons eventually. Um, no. Yeah, I okay. guess so. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, if you say so, I mean, I. It, why do they have to trade one? I mean, the, the 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 leader of the team is has has shown himself to be, you know, like Joel Embiid takes responsibility for himself. 
I mean, I, I don't know what else like to say. The leader of the team is, you know, for, well, first, it can be it can come with a coach. That's number one. But the leader of the team is is I think has proven himself to be Joel Embiid just because they're down 3-0 in this series, <clears throat> just because he you know he he is not always available to play. <clears throat> doesn't mean he's not a leader. I think he's taken on the part pretty well. He's sir he's I mean he's a good example for younger players. He's, you know, good for your, you know, your 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 chemistry and your relationships between players. And I think he, you know, he takes responsibility for for and, you know, basically where is the badge for everybody. So I think Joel is undoubtedly the leader of the, of this team as it's currently constructed. Um he's Landis Brock. Um I'm Krell. I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> no, he's Landis Brock on Twitter. I'm Krell TPL on Twitter. Austin Krell with you as always. Brock Landis, uh, as always. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Have a good Saturday night, and we'll see you uh, hopefully in the next week for another episode of the Feed to Embiid. I guess hopefully at this point it'll be that the season's over and we're just done with this miserable train wreck of a team. Um, but until then, take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to su- subscribe on Apple Pods. The feed to MB, give us a five star review or no, five star rating and a review. Um, take care, everybody. Have a good night. Do you like shotgunning beer? Do you want to increase your shotgun time at parties? Check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes the perfect shotgunning hole under a second. There's also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on a keychain. For more information about the King Cobra, check them out at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. on Instagram and Cobra is spelled with a K. For 10% discount on all products, enter the code TRUSTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. The feed to Embiid and its name are protected by U.S. copyright laws. Reproduction and distribution without my written permission is prohibited. Copyright the feed to Embiid 2020.